Question. Are you a conformer or a challenger? Well, you'll know some challengers. I suggest most of us are conformers. A guy called Solomon Aish, who was a psychologist, did an experiment, famous experiment once. He got loads of uh, 17 to 24-year-olds, and he got them into groups of 8, 10, that sort of number, and he put them in a room to answer a very, very basic question. The catch was that all but one of them in each group was, uh, was set up. So seven of them knew what was going to happen, one didn't. What he did was he put on a screen some lines like these. And the question was this. Out loud, each of you in turn needs to say which A, B, or C line is equal to the first line. And we all know it's B. <laughs> Here's what happened. They went through it, and everybody, include those who, including those who were set up, said the right letter. A couple of times, they went through it with different series of lines. And then, on the third time through, each of the set up people said, in this case, uh, B, B, B. And by the time it got to the person who didn't know what was going on, guess what happened? They said B. In third, and they went through this and through this with different sets of lines. In 37% of the cases they went through this, the person who wasn't the setup, every time, 37% said the wrong one, even though they knew it was wrong. In 75% of the cases, the non-setup person at least once went along with what they knew was a lie. What was that all about? Conformity. Peer pressure. You could even see them. There were videos. You could see the person uh, B. It's like they know they're saying the wrong thing, but the pressure that they're feeling, even though no one is saying, you must say B, or whichever it was, was quite... Extraordinary. Most of us, I suggest to you, are conformers most of the time. There's nothing necessarily wrong with that. We're raised and we're trained in a certain environment. We get used to certain ways of doing things and we hold generally accepted values. We want to be liked and we tend to flow with the prevailing culture. But there are others who swim against the tide. And depending on your point of view, they may be positive or negative. They may be fighting a, a just cause or just plain narky, but they challenge the status quo. Do you know some people like that? They question the norms. They're counter-cultural. And history is full of counter-cultural individuals and counter-cultural movements. Let me give you just one of many examples. One example in... Late 18th century, English slave traders shockingly captured up to 50,000 West Africans every year, selling them into slavery across the Atlantic. The finances were enormous. 
The acceptability of it in our day now was utterly deplorable. William Wilberforce had a moment. And he later wrote this, so enormous, so dreadful did the slave trade's wickedness appear that my own mind was completely made up for abolition. Let the consequences be what they would, I from this time determined that I would never rest until I had effected its abolition. There have been many counter-cultural individuals and movements. And then there's Jesus. Jesus was and is God in the flesh. Jesus was and is the purest, most loving and truth-filled human being the world has ever encountered. And he was and is perhaps the most counter-cultural individual the world has ever seen. What he taught, how he lived, the kingdom he inaugurated directly confronted the culture in which he spent his years on earth, resulting, of course, in his execution. And he challenges every single culture in every single part of the world today, including the one in which we live, the one in which you were raised. He challenges it all. For example, to the, the culture that says family is everything, which is a common thing around the world, Jesus says, do you remember this famous instance? He says, who is my father and my, or who is my mother and my brothers? He says, what is, you have no idea, but I can see by the look on your faces, you have no idea how shocking that is. He says, well, those who do the will of my father and my brother and my mother. To those individualistic cultures, on the other hand, Jesus says, do you, do you not know how I created you? Do you not know you are social beings? Do you know you need one another? To the materialistic culture, who says that the physical, what you have, the stuff, is all that matters. Jesus says again, do you not know how I made you? Do you not know that God himself is non-material, non-physical? We are spiritual beings with a spiritual father. And to those who say the physical doesn't matter, he says, but you're created in the image of God. Your very bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't matter which culture on the spectrum you're from. Jesus challenges head on each and every one of them. He's so gracious, isn't he? Oh dear. He's so gracious, isn't he? But he's so uncomfortable. He's so beautiful. But he's so challenging. He's so embracing. And yet he's so confronting. He's just not what we would expect. John Stott, famous theologian from last century, century and early this century, said this, the only possible way to respond to Jesus is extremely Great way to put it. No one who ever met Jesus ever had a moderate reaction to him. They either hated him and wanted to kill him, or they were afraid of him and wanted to run away, or they were absolutely smitten with him and tried to give their whole lives to him. But no one ever had a moderate reaction to him. I love that. It's so right. So we're starting a new series today. Counter-Cultural Jesus. 
And we're going to look at 10 places in Matthew's gospel when Jesus challenges the culture of his day and equally challenges the culture in which we spend our time. And I trust will challenge each of us. Today we're starting with Jesus on our purpose. And I'm going to read a section of Matthew chapter 22 which will appear on the screen. I'll give you some context in a moment. But diving in, we read this, Matthew chapter 22, starting at verse 34, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. The Sadducees, one group of Jewish leaders, and the Pharisees, another group, got together. And one of them, an expert in the law, what we would call the Old Testament law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, Here it is, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Mark's account and strength. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets, the entire scriptures, hang on these two commandments. Now we need to note the context in which we find this passage. It's always important to do that. It's important to do that here. See, the tension has been rising since Matthew chapter 12. And when I say the tension has been rising, I really mean it. It's getting hot out there. See, in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus has healed someone on the Sabbath. Sounds like good news to us. Well, it wasn't to the religious leaders because it broke the Sabbath commandment of so-called working, which they had qualified to include helping people. And it says this, the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. And by chapter 22, where we are, things are as liable to ignite as a portable barbecue in the Purbex during the recent heat wave. Did you hear about that? Huge fire across the Purbex. See, here's what's been going on. A couple of days before this passage that we've read, just a couple of days before, Jesus has ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey, which sounds quaint to us, but is incendiary because of Old Testament prophecy, with the result that, we're told, the whole city was stirred. Imagine something happened in Bournemouth and the whole city is stirred. Everyone's getting pretty uncomfortable. The tension is rising. The very next day after that, we find this is happening. Jesus entered the temple courts and he drove out those who were trading there, saying this was meant to be a house of prayer, for goodness sake. What are you doing? Well, the blind and the lame, we're told, came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, they were indignant. Well, the following day, here's what happens. Jesus again enters the temple. And while he was teaching... Those in authority there said, by what authority are you going about doing this stuff? Then he tells them two parables. And parables are not always nice little Sunday school stories. The conclusion of these two parables that Jesus then says is this. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. And so they looked for a way to arrest him. 
Then he tells another parable. And then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words, sending a delegation with a question. Can you see what's happening? It's ratcheting up at every one of these instances. The temperature is rising. The tension is palpable. And then the Sadducees send a delegation with another question. It's really building. And then we get to chapter 22, where we are in today. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. And one of them, an expert in the law, tested Jesus with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now that sounds like a reasonable question, doesn't it, to you? Be interesting to know. Here's a well-known teacher. He's causing a whole lot of trouble. He's stirred, the whole city is stirred. I wonder what he thinks is the biggest commandment in the law. But it's not a reasonable question because the text tells us that he was seeking to test Jesus. And that Greek, the Greek original behind the translation tested is always used negatively in Matthew's gospel a number of times. He's coming with a question to Jesus to trap Jesus in his words, to find him saying something that incriminates him because their plan, the whole narrative tells us, and this little bit tells us as well, is that they want to find something in him that they can eliminate him for. They're bent on his death. Well, what about this question? Well, the dominant Jewish culture was very God-fearing, though very rules-focused. The rabbis had identified 613 commandments in the Old Testament law that you had to obey. Imagine you had to live your Christian life like that. Every day, 613, I better not forget any. And there was debate that of those 613, which were heavy and which were light. Not that they didn't matter because God gave them, but which are the really heavy ones that we jolly well better remember? Which are the light ones? Maybe less important. And then they also added many other rules to make sure you didn't get near to breaking any of those 613. It's a bit like if you're, if you're walking along a path and you see a sign on the grass that says, keep off the grass. That's the commandment. Well, the Pharisees then put a fence around it so that you couldn't even get close to possibly getting on the grass. Life was full of rules and regulations if you wanted to be a good, God-fearing Jew. And then there were other debates. There were debates, you see, which gets to this passage particularly, about is there an overriding principle? Is there a greatest commandment? If we were to forget everything else but just did this, what would it be? Jesus, you're a teacher around here. What do you think? What do you say is the greatest commandment? You see, one guy, one Rabbi Hillel had said, whatever you yourself hate, do not do to your neighbor. That's the whole law, he said. Teacher, what do you say is the greatest commandment? Testing him to trap him in his words. And what Jesus does is he quotes two little bits from the Old Testament as we have it, from Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19, boiling it all down. What's the greatest commandment? Jesus boils it all down to these two Old Testament scriptures to say, loving God with a love that flows out to others too, because that's just what he's like. 
all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So if someone wants to know, what should we give ourselves to? What's the point of life? Why am I here? Jesus says to love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul and to love your neighbor as, him, as yourself. And his answer just reinforced their view of him and their determination to get rid of him. We're told a couple of chapters later, which is a very short time, then the elders, so then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest and they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. He is so countercultural in so many ways. And Jesus' reply to this expert in the law is most certainly countercultural in our day. If you were to ask most people today, what is the greatest commandment? Or to put it in our language, what's the point of life? Why am I here? I'd suggest you'd probably be able to put people's answers into two categories, which would be broadly these. Number one, well, we're here to do as much good to others as we possibly can. Or more so these days, the younger you are, the purpose of life is to be true to yourself. You be you with all the energy you've got. In other words, love others or love yourself. Jesus is truly countercultural. The preeminent purpose of life, he says, is to, is to love God, not yourself, and to love others as yourself. Which reminds me of a little book produced in the Queen, for the Queen's 90th birthday. It was the only book she has ever written a foreword to, ever. And it was called this, The Servant Queen and the King She Served. It was a book produced for her 90th birthday to celebrate her faith. We may never see the likes of this again. And it's a beautiful title, The Servant Queen, because that's what people have been loving about her, isn't it? She served us. And the king she served. For those of us who are Christians today, that is a beautiful thing, isn't it? That we know that she had a God-shaped life. She would have understood Jesus' reply here, love God and love others with all you've got. What can we say about all this? Well, we can say a couple of things. The first thing we can say is this. God is the great point and purpose of life. Let me tell you, that's a countercultural message. Because you're not going to hear that anywhere outside a church in these days. And perhaps it is the thing, the thing we most need to hear. If you're not a Christian here today, it's lovely to have you here sincerely. The biggest thing I would want to tell you out of today is that the point of everything is God. <laughs> he's, he's the point of everything. If you're a Christian who's sort of drifting and a bit on the edge, I'd want to say to you, remember God is the point of everything. If you're a Christian here today who is full on going for it, 
with a smile on my face, I want to encourage you and remind you of what you know and you know and you know. The point of everything is God. But it's not so much a commandment to fulfill. All right, so now tell me, what must I do for God to be the center of everything? That's not really how it works so much. It might have been the, the way of the Jewish leaders. It might be the way of some religious leaders today. But it's less about a commandment to obey. It's more an orientation that regards God himself as our purpose, as our center, as the one around whom we orbit. Back in the 16th century, you scientific historians will know this, Back in the 16th century, it was commonly believed that our world was geocentric, not heliocentric. What does that mean? It was believed that the sun orbited the earth. Until a guy called Copernicus, from his observations of the stars and so on, had a sudden revelation and thought, oh my word! Well, I'm not sure if he said that, but... <laughs> oh, my word! We've got it wrong all these years. And Galileo became famous as the one who proposed this and came into all sorts of conflict with the established church. You see, but doesn't the Bible say the earth is firmly established, it will not be moved? It does say that, doesn't it? And it seems to say that the sun rises and the sun sets. And a misunderstanding of that genre of parts of the Old Testament led them to believe, well, it can't possibly be that the sun goes around the earth, because the Bible seems to say that the earth is still, so the sun must go around. And Copernicus and Galileo had this blinding, countercultural realization that is not how it works. The earth orbits the, the sun. It was a hugely countercultural thing, got them into all sorts of trouble. Jesus comes and says, what is the greatest commandment? It's this. You orbit God. He is the center of everything. Get rid of your silly ideas that God is some being orbiting around you to help you keep going. No, you exist because he exists. You're centered on him. We orbit around him. He's the point of everything. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. We spend our lives bombarded by the opposite message, by the generally accepted message that God is either non-existent or peripheral, or if there's a God, well, he must be there to serve us, to orbit around us. Jesus gives a completely counter-cultural reorientation. The point of life is God, to love him. It's what Christians remind each other every Sunday. You and I have been out in the world this week, which is the right place to be, bombarded by every other message. And we gather together. One of the reasons that the church gathers once a week as a whole is to say this to, to each other. I know you've had a lot of stuff going on in the week, but let's remember together, God is the point of everything. He's why we exist. 
He's what we exist for. He's the one who we came from. He's the one we're going to. He's the point of everything. He's the one who sent his son to die for us so that we could know him and be with him forever. Isn't that what we're doing? When we get together, that's part of what we're doing. We're saying to each other, don't forget, because you have done some of the week, the point of everything is God. And the church calls out to the world, which is obsessed with all sorts of other things, and sends a countercultural message to the world that says, there is a God who loves you, who is the point of everything, and in whom you will find the whole point and purpose of life. Now that's the life that Jesus lived. And that's the life that he is calling us to. And I am convinced that for some of us this morning, there are going to be decisions to draw us back to orbiting around God where we've drifted away from him or in a particular part of life we've strayed from him and to say, God, I'm going to put you back at the middle. Because Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And secondly, as the great purpose of life God is to be loved and obeyed. Now, God should be love. God should be love just because he's God. <laughs> That's just true. If he's God, he should be loved. If he's God, he should be obeyed. But he should also be loved because he's lovely. He's lovely. It's been interesting hearing people about the Queen. What, why should we honour the Queen? Why should we not really in our society, but obey the queen. Well, there are two reasons. One, she's the queen, tough. You've got to do what she says, she's the boss. But it's very true that people love the queen because she's lovely. Why should you love God? Because he's God, for goodness sake. And because he's lovely. What is it to love God? Well, it involves the emotions for sure. But it's not just a soppy feeling. One guy, one old guy said this, to love God is to have, it's a lovely old quaint saying, to love God is to have a delightful and affectionate sense of the divine perfections. That's really nice. God is perfect. He is lovely. He's wonderful. And he should be loved holistically. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength, Mark adds. There's not a single part of me that isn't called to love God with everything. One guy rewrote that to say this. Love the Lord your God with total commitment, that's the heart, with your total self, that's your soul, to total excess. Loving God, he said, should be over the top. <laughs> and God should be loved through obedience. Jesus' reply to the teacher in this passage is taken from Deuteronomy chapter 6. And it's very clear that the point of loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength is this, that it leads to obedience that we do what he says. It's, you see, it's not that obeying God is now off the agenda in favor of loving him, but that love for God is evidenced by delight in him and obedience to him. That's what we are called to, which is exactly what Jesus modeled to us. What did he say? My food is to do the will of my Father in heaven. And think of him in Gethsemane, in agony, 
in utter and complete agony. He is fighting a fight. It's the only time I know of where Jesus asks something and it doesn't get granted. It's a mysterious moment. And yet he still says, Father, not what I will, but what you will. What is it to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? It's a holistic thing that involves the affections and involves the will. I do what he says because he's God and because he is lovely. And he has my best at heart. Putting all that together, what can we say it might look like? It might look like this. It might look like waking up in the morning and saying, God, good morning, command me. It might look like inquiring of him about every major decision that we make. It might look like acknowledging him as supreme throughout the day. I want to do this. Is that what he'd want? I'm tempted to do that. Is that what his best for me? And it might look like doing whatever he says, however costly it might be. There was a film a few years ago, one of many films that have been made about Churchill. And in this film, Churchill has been a little bit ostracized from the commanding group of people who are making decisions about D-Day in this film. And of course, Churchill doesn't want to be marginalized. He's used to being at the right at the center of things. And so he's trying to muscle in a little bit. And what he really wants to do knowing that they've planned D-Day and they're going to go and invade the French coast. What he really wants to do, Churchill, he wants to be on one of the boats with the men going to land on French soil. But King George VI, knowing what Churchill's like, thinks, that's all very honorable, but I can't have Churchill mown down by the guns. So King George goes to see Churchill in his home, knowing that's what Churchill is feeling like. And the king has made his own decision. I can't go. It wouldn't be right. And so he goes to Churchill and he says this, and you, Winston, in the film, very gently, and you, Winston, must not go. And Churchill's in real pain about this. The king says, well... Churchill's great reply in this film is this. In real pain, he says this. Sir, you are my king, and I must do what you command. I wonder if there are some here today who need to make some countercultural decisions. Maybe it's to follow Jesus for the first time. Maybe you've been drifting and you've just lost your orbit And it's like you're drifting out of orbit. And God is this morning, the Holy Spirit is saying, get back into orbit. Don't remember, God is the point of everything. Or it might be there's something in your life where you know you're drifting and you've forgotten. You know it, but you've forgotten. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul and all your strength. What does that look like? It looks like this. Sir... You are my king, and I must do as you command. Could we stand, please? I would love, I would love, I'd absolutely love 
for some of us to nail some things this morning and say, I'm getting back into orbit. I've lost my focus. I've lost the center. This morning, countercultural though it may be, I'm coming back to order, orbit around the King of Kings. We're going to sing a song. Here's what I'd love you to do. And this might take a bit of countercultural courage. I'd love you to come forward so that someone in a few minutes can pray with you. I'd love you to be able to do that. It might be a massive thing. It might be a little thing. Do you know what? Wouldn't it be great to nail something down today and say, I'm going to get back to orbiting around God with all my heart, with all my soul, and with all my mind. So while we sing, why don't you, if that's you, it must be some, why don't you come down the front, fight your shame or sense of it. There is no shame in this place, but fight your sense of it. Fight wondering what other people are saying or thinking. You do some business with God this morning. Holy Spirit, please come and help us. Courage isn't listed as a fruit of the Spirit, but it certainly is one. Lord, please give us courage this morning to nail some stuff to get our orbit right again. Come on, when the song starts, I'm quite sure some folks just need to start moving forward. When you get here, just start talking to God and sing the song and we'll get someone to come and pray with you.